Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 223, King Alfred and Chippenham. This show is ad-free due to member support. And as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a pint per month. And thank you very much to Helen, Mary, and Margaret for signing up already. How do you redeem a year like 877? If you're Alfred, how do you fix something like this? Even if he cast it in the best possible light, the story of 877 would still be the story of how Wessex lost control of two of its major coastal strongholds, of how it was unable to directly counter the military strength of Guthrum, and of how the kingdom largely survived only thanks to bad weather. Now true, all of this could be cast as divine intervention, and that would definitely bolster some spirits. But even in that circumstance, even if you're looking at all of this as God getting involved, you're still looking at a year that was so bad that the Almighty had to put his thumb on the scale. And the hits kept on coming. As harvest season drew to a close, Alfred would have received word from across the channel that King Charles the Bald of Francia had died. Now Charles was never the best king, but his death would have raised the specter of instability. And don't forget how powerful the Viking fleets became when they were able to exploit Frankish instability. And the prospect of short-sighted nobles once again financing these pirates would have been cause for concern, to say the least. And then there was the way that Charles died. He didn't die in battle against the Vikings. Frankly, that would have been difficult since the Scandinavians were mostly interested in the British Isles these days. No, the way that Charles died was far more worrisome, and it again pointed to an era of instability. The king became sick, and he developed a fever, and he was persuaded by his doctor to drink a potion. Unfortunately for Charles, there were members of his court who were maneuvering against him, and the powder that formed the basis of that potion was poison. It took Charles 11 days to die. And it wasn't pretty, nor was it regal. We're told that he died in the Alps, in, quote, a wretched little hut, end quote. And those close to the king weren't anticipating his death. So his attendants suddenly found themselves in possession of the king's body, and they were tasked with bringing it back to Paris for a proper burial. That was a long journey that they were not prepared for especially when taking into account the fact that the king, who was already pretty gross from his illness and poisoning, would now be decomposing. And you thought your commute was bad. Now, someone amongst this group suggested that the party mitigate the impending smell by taking a few precautions. So they cut the king open, and they pulled out his intestines. Once that had been taken care of, they took the process a little farther, and stuffed the king full of wine and anything else they could find that smelled good. So flowers, herbs, pretty much anything. And once Charles was sufficiently plump with flowers and herbs, they loaded him onto a beer, and they began their journey to Saint-Denis. But it turns out that human beings make terrible potpourri, and it wasn't long before he started to smell. And the smell was probably even worse than before. But Charles's attendants were loyal, and they continued their march with the king. 
And then the kingly stench started getting worse. Human decomposition was now mixing with the wilting flowers and the booze. And the hapless pallbearers couldn't escape it. They couldn't stand a little to the side or walk farther upwind. They were transporting the king's body, so they were right on top of it. It was right next to them whenever they marched. And for those of you who've been around death, you'll know that you can actually taste it. It's got a foul sweetness to it. It gets in your teeth. It's awful. And because it's such a viscous scent, that meant that the attendants wouldn't be able to just breathe through their mouths to escape it. There was no escape from this smell. And eventually, his pallbearers hit a wall. Eventually, they realized that they couldn't take it anymore and that something needed to be done. So they acquired a barrel and lined the interior with pitch. And then they shoved the king inside. It didn't work. The stench still escaped. So they covered the outside in hides. And still, that stench escaped. Only now, the smell of sour wine, rotten flowers, and decayed flesh was mixing with pitch and animal hide. It was getting worse. The royal stench was so bad that even though Charles was supposed to be interred at Saint-Denis, his attendants were losing hope. They needed to offload this barrel, and quickly. And so it was that they found a little Benedictine monastery on the outskirts of the Archdiocese of Lyon. It was a place called Nantua, and it was really of no import other than the fact that they would accept a body. And there, the attendant said, Ah, good enough. Father, we've got a king in a barrel for you. Good luck. And then they scampered off, probably before anyone had the chance to tap that particular vintage. Now, given the gravity of what royalty had come to mean in the Carolingian court, given that it was a role that was semi-spiritual, this end to the king must have struck some as a bad omen. 877 had an evil cast to it. It had been a bad year for everyone. Even monks in isolated Frankish villages were having a bad time. And while Alfred's year was also terrible, he would have had to acknowledge that his problems begun long before 877. Alfred's rule had not begun well. He took the throne as the last scion of a dying dynasty that was embroiled in a war against a nigh-unstoppable foe. And then he immediately lost that war, and he had to pay a massive Danegeld for his trouble. The mood within his kingdom certainly would have darkened at that moment. And while he could say, this isn't my fault, the Danes did this to us, and I'm suffering too, well, when you're the one collecting the taxes, and people are going hungry, nuance like that can be lost. And it looks like it probably was. The nobility were straining against the taxes that he was imposing upon them. Furthermore, Alfred was constructing defenses, including ships, during this period. And that, too, would have resulted in more taxes. And as the tax collectors arrived, I wonder how many people ignored the argument of this is for the good of the kingdom and instead focused on the fact that they were getting taxed again, right after they were getting taxed for that damned Danegeld. And to make matters worse, the Danegelds weren't working. They paid one to Half Dan in 871, and despite that payment, they still had Viking ships that they had to fight off the coast of Sandwich pretty soon thereafter. And then... When they paid one to Guthrum, that prick didn't even leave the kingdom. He just grabbed Exeter instead. 
The way things were going, it was looking like everyone was being taxed just so that Alfred could follow in his brother-in-law's footsteps. And it wasn't like those were good footsteps. Burgred had bankrupted his kingdom with payments and then just went and gave up and fled to Rome. So what was the point of all this? And irritatingly, the alternative to the Danegeld, namely fighting the Danes and driving them out of Wessex, wasn't really an answer for the subjects of Wessex either. The Ferd of Wessex was weakened, and they probably weren't excited to fight on Alfred's behalf given his record in war. Alfred himself would have had to admit that he'd been a middling war leader with more losses in his column than wins. So he wasn't going to be able to convince his people that he could easily overcome the Danes if they should return. Moreover, Alfred must have known that his nobles were taking note of what was happening in Mercia and were beginning to realize that they might have other options, potentially better options than what he could offer. It was becoming clear to anyone who looked at Mercia that King Cholwulf II was doing quite well. In fact, just this year he'd expanded some of his holdings, and he probably undercut some of his rivals in the process. If the West Saxon nobles played their cards right, there were advantages to working with these Danes. And if Alfred was deposed, one of them might be selected to rule over Wessex. One of them could be king. And what could Alfred offer them? More fighting? Maybe more taxes? Alfred's enemies list was extensive, and it even included Archbishop Athelred of Canterbury. Now, the archbishopric was a position that was forever a thorn in the side of Anglo-Saxon kings, but it seems that it was particularly a problem for Alfred, probably due to the fact that his family had a habit of seizing church land, especially in times of need. And lately, there had been a lot of need. So like the rest of the nobility, it seems that the See of Canterbury was growing tired of the tax burden that was imposed upon them. And, like the rest of the nobility, the argument of, this is for the good of the kingdom, wasn't carrying all that much weight. But Alfred needed everyone on board. He needed his kingdom to be stable in the event of another invasion. And he also needed those taxes. So all he could do when the archbishop balked was to try and curry favor with him through diplomatic means. And that's why, only one year earlier, in 876, Alfred had been trying to buy support within Kent. Unfortunately, it doesn't appear that Alfred's mission was successful, because when we look at letters written after these meetings, we see that the Archbishop was still displeased with the rule of Alfred. And when the Pope wrote to Archbishop Athelred, he spoke of a letter that he sent to Alfred scolding him for failing to respect the Archbishopric. But interestingly, no record of that letter exists in England, nor is there any record of the letters sent to the Archbishop. The only record that we have of this is from the papal register. And that may be simply because someone in Wessex sucked at filing, or perhaps there was a leaky roof on a rainy day. But it's also possible that no record remains because Alfred didn't want to keep a record of how angry the church was with him. And once it was clear that Alfred wasn't going anywhere, perhaps the archbishop didn't want to keep a record of his letter either. Both letters would be damning in their own ways. And it just happened that both letters vanished, and they only turned up in the papal register at Monte Cassino. But, thanks to that copy, we know what it says. And the following was written by the Pope about Alfred. Quote, 
for we have been at pains to admonish and exhort your king with a letter from the apostolic see, not to neglect to be obedient to you, end quote. So basically, the Pope went and told Alfred off for not listening to the Archbishop of Canterbury. And then he goes on, quote, We, however, exhort and warn you, my brother, on account of the necessity of the present time, that you station yourself as a wall for the house of the Lord, laying aside every worldly fear as a proper servant of God, and kindled by zeal for him, do not cease to resist strenuously not only the king, but all who wish to do wrong against it, end quote. Did you catch what he was saying there? That wasn't even subtext. That was just text. He was basically telling the archbishop to take a stand against Alfred, regardless of any fears of death. And the Pope even goes on to say about how he admonished Alfred to show the archbishop honor and told him that he should do so out of a desire to preserve his station. So Pope John VIII had grown openly hostile to Alfred's rule. And he was telling the archbishop that he'd already basically told Alfred, you've got a nice kingdom there, and it would be a shame if someone came along and took it from you. That's intense, and you can see why there aren't any records of that letter in England anymore. But yeah, Alfred was having a terrible decade, and the events of 877 had taken it from bad to worse. And now, as 877 drew to a close, he had to contend with the reality of winter. The nights were getting longer. The work in the field was lessening, and thanks to the days getting colder, his people would be spending a lot more time around the fire. That meant that they had extra time to think about everything that's happened to them. Extra time to ponder how often they've been taxed. Extra time to grouse. And they have plenty to grouse about. So if you were Alfred, would you want them thinking about it all that hard? When it comes down to it, he was one angry courtier, just one dodgy potion away from being in a stinky barrel himself. Alfred needed something to keep the people happy. Luckily for him, Anglo-Saxon culture had a built-in system to help keep everyone from growing too discontent and dissatisfied. They had a feasting culture. And the 12 days of Christmas would certainly raise the morale of his court. How could it not? And besides... If he could put together a large series of feasts, then it would demonstrate that despite the events of 877, everything was okay, and Alfred was still a powerful king with the favor of God himself. Politically and emotionally, Alfred had every reason to want to do it up big this year. So, as they did every year, feasts were held all throughout the kingdom. And as for Alfred, he needed to throw a feast that would keep his nobility in line. He needed them to reaffirm their bonds, remember their position, and renew their oaths of fealty. The Anglo-Saxons had a long tradition of a traveling court, and their monarchs feasting all throughout their kingdoms. And so digging into that and reinforcing this practice made a lot of sense right now. Seeing his far-flung nobility and feasting with them in person meant that Alfred could start to repair some of those ties that had been strained by the taxing. In Anglo-Saxon culture, feasts weren't just parties. They were the social glue of the Anglo-Saxon ruling class. That's what these things were all about. And Alfred needed this feast to work. So it's likely that he pulled out all the stops. And after some deliberation, he selected the location. And the West Saxon court rode to a royal vill called Chippenham. Now Chippenham was a little settlement that sat right next to the River Avon. 
It had comfortable surroundings that could house the king and his courtiers. It also had a long history, having been inhabited since at least the era of Roman occupation, which might have made it attractive to the bookish King Alfred. Furthermore, Chippenham was close to hunting grounds, and as Alfred was an enthusiastic hunter, he was probably looking forward to spending several days engaged in one of his favorite pastimes, bad health and weather notwithstanding. His military advisors probably also knew the secondary reason for their presence in Chippenham. While the hunting grounds were nice and the river was beautiful, Chippenham was located just to the south of Gloucester, which was the Mercian border town where Guthrum resided. And sure, the Danes had apparently turned their swords to plowshares and were now all landowners and farmers, but that's no reason to let your guard down. Alfred had every reason to want to keep an eye on his northern border, especially considering how quickly and easily Guthrum got all the way down to the southern coast last time. So for Alfred, Chippenham was a bit of a twofer, and it wasn't long before he, his family, and his retainers were joined by extended family, powerful eldermen, high-status clergy, and other important thanes. Chippenham was now bustling with life and activity. And given the timing and the importance of the gathering, we can reasonably assume that the Witan would have also been present. So this wasn't just a celebration and an opportunity to bond with the most powerful nobles of the realm. It was also an opportunity to conduct the important work of state. A king's work never ended in this era. And given the way things were going, Alfred didn't have time to just have a vacation in Chippenham. He had to get the business of state done. His kingdom was vulnerable to invasion, and his rule was vulnerable to malcontents. This was a needle that he couldn't thread very easily, but it still needed to be thread. So, as the high-status members of West Saxon life filtered into Chippenham, Alfred would have been behaving as an Anglo-Saxon king would have done. He would have been giving gifts, hearing cases, making appointments, and planning for the year ahead. I love imagining this specific moment in history. There was Alfred, and he was among his family, his court, and his subjects. This would have been a meaningful holiday. The Anglo-Saxons would have been as attached to these events as we are to our own. They would have had the same feelings of closeness and companionship and nostalgia. There would have been traditions and celebrations, things that individuals would look forward to all year. And I wonder if Alfred had a favorite dish or maybe a favorite song. Did he look forward to teaching them to his children? There are all these little moments that get lost in history, but they must have been there. And at the same time, the Anglo-Saxons would be celebrating hard. There would be drinking and toasts and songs and oaths. It would have been raucous. It would have been exciting. It would have been fun. But among all of this, there would be tense moments. Alfred was surrounded by people who were becoming increasingly dissatisfied with his rule. And some of these people might even have been his former supporters. And it wasn't until that last defeat or that last tax where they started to look for a better way. And the archbishop was also likely in attendance. Alfred was in a situation where he had to invite a man of the cloth who had just spent the last year complaining to the Pope and appears to have wanted to depose him. And while most of us have at least one relative that we'd rather not deal with at Christmas dinner, Alfred would have had dozens. However, you can't let a little drama interrupt Christmas. The feasting must go on. 
and on and on. This was a party that lasted nearly a fortnight, and the feasts would have been carried out much like the symbols that we spoke about back in the feasting episodes. The Galathod, the guests, would have arrived in their finery and possibly surrendered their weapons to Alfred's guards. A horn might have sounded to announce the beginning of the feast, at which point the guests would have washed their hands and entered the hall. The room itself would likely have had guards present and a large number of rectangular tables that could seat everyone of import. All the comforts of home would have been present. A roaring fire, napkins, possibly even tablecloths. As these were ceremonial feasts, they would have involved a commemoration of the religious significance of the day. But once that was complete, the feast would truly begin. Food would be brought in, large amounts of alcohol would be served, stories would be told, songs would be sung, oaths would be made. As the night went on, those shouting wassail to your health and drink hail, drink and be healthy, would have gotten louder and more enthusiastic. And as is fitting with the season, there were many of these feasts to be had. So it wouldn't have just been one night of wassailing. It would have gone night after night after night. And as they went on, the bonds deepened. Old friendships were strengthened. New friendships were formed. The complex web of interpersonal relationships that bound the kingdom together was being repaired and strengthened. Now these days, we probably would assume that the biggest night would be the 25th of December, Christmas night. However, at this point, the official date of Christmas was only 61 years old. Relatively, it was pretty new. Christmas also had a lot of pagan overtones. It wasn't all that long ago that Bede talked about it being the night for a pagan goddess, and it still had all that Yule stuff tied up with it. So instead, the really big night was the Feast of the Epiphany, or as it's commonly known, Twelfth Night. That would have been the feast to remember. It was all leading up to this. All the celebrations, all the dinners and toasts, everything was leading to this final blowout. This was the night where they would bring out the best meals, the best drinks, the best entertainment. Even in the songs commemorating the 12 days of Christmas, we're told that it's on this night that 12 maidens would be singing wassails. This would be a night of drinking, a night of revelry and celebration of the epiphany. It was also a time to celebrate surviving another year. They had come perilously close to death in 877. The Danes had invaded and occupied two of their coastal strongholds and nearly had a massive fleet open up a second front in that war. But they were delivered from that doom by a miracle. Their new 30-year-old king didn't just have a sharp mind. He appeared to have the protection of God himself. The fleet of pagans that could have destroyed this kingdom now lay at the bottom of the channel. And Guthrum had been pushed into Mercia, and for the last four months, he'd apparently been trying his hand at farming. Fear of their king had pacified the heathens. Alfred and the God of the English stood triumphant. And what better time to celebrate that fact than on the date that God was revealed to be made incarnate? Twelfth night would have been a night to remember. It was a night for Guthrum to remember as well. You can imagine him grinning at how predictable these West Saxons were. How, despite the attacks of Halfdan, and despite even Guthrum's own attack, they still dropped their guard every winter. 
And right in the middle of it, they spent nearly two weeks feasting. Two weeks where even their war bands were getting drunk. And it wasn't just the king who did this. The whole kingdom seems to have forgotten who sat on their border. They might as well have sent an invitation. So four months after he left Wessex in shame, Guthrum organized his forces to re-enter the southern kingdom. And once again, he had an audacious plan. Specifically, he had an eye towards conquest. He didn't want loot. He didn't want treasure. He wanted the kingdom. And to do that, he would need to do what Halfdan did to Burgred. He would need to show the weakness of Alfred, and then give the West Saxon nobles the opportunity to seek a better future. A Danish future. Guthrum didn't need to defeat everyone in Wessex. He just needed to defeat the top brass. And then he could just let the rest of the West Saxon nobility, who were all desperate to climb the ladder, finish the job for him. And so Guthrum and his army gathered their weapons and armor, and they snuck out of Gloucester, crossed the border into Wessex, and began making their way towards Chippenham. I imagine that as the Danes were advancing quickly through the countryside, Alfred sat next to the hearth fire on Twelfth Night, hearing stories, receiving oaths. Perhaps his wife, Osburga, stayed for the revelry, or maybe she retired to care for Elfrida or Ethelgiva, who would have been just babies at this point. And I wonder how much nine-year-old Athelflade and seven-year-old Edward were allowed to witness. Was there some sort of kids' room where they were kept apart from all the drunken chaos that was happening in the hall? Or were these halls filled with scampering noble children, playing with each other and enjoying being in the presence of adult merriment? That appears to be the way that Alfred was raised, but we don't know if he did that with his kids. But the feasting of Twelfth Night probably drifted into Thirteenth Morning before it finally began to wind down, and everyone settled down to probably a rather drunken sleep. The twelve days were over. The feasts had done their job. Everybody was bonded, drunk, and while the hangover tomorrow would be vicious, that would be something that future Unferth would have to worry about. Present Unferth had a great time. And into this scene entered Guthrum. Based upon the language of the Chronicle and the tactics that we've already seen Guthrum use, it appears that the Danes relied primarily on stealth. They were seeking to take Chippenham by surprise. And they succeeded. There doesn't appear to have been any sort of battle. And that very well might have been because the warband was caught entirely unaware. Or maybe they were just too drunk to fight. Regardless, Guthrum likely strode into the ville triumphant. His men had taken the town and had shown the king exactly how weak he was. Now, all that was left was to force him to abdicate or simply take his head. But there was something wrong. The Vikings were having a hard time finding the West Saxon king. Guthrum's forces fanned out throughout the town, probably pulling floorboards and relentlessly searching and searching and searching. I wonder what Guthrum's reaction was as the Vikings tore through Chippenham, looking for the one man that he needed to pull off his final victory. And they were unable to do so. Meanwhile, to the west of town, Alfred and a small band of his supporters fled into the countryside. Behind them lay their friends, 
their family, and the throne of Wessex. All of them were now likely in the hands of Guthrum. Ahead lay nothing but the marshes of Somerset. They were lost. The kingdom was lost. But Alfred still lived. Thanks for listening. Well, I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall and the major lift, the baffled king composed.